This podcast is brought to you by Voice of Vets. Voice of Vets. Hear it. Feel it. Feel it. Feel it. Feel it. We are speaking to Dr. Terry Marshall, a specialist virologist at Empath Laboratory, sharing with us the COVID-19 testing process, the facts and the myths. Now, Dr. Terry, thank you very much for joining us here on the COVID Report. And firstly, please take us through the testing of COVID-19. So basically, the testing as it is at the moment is based predominantly on PCR testing. So what we usually do is we get a sample collected from a patient who may have suspected COVID. Um, It gets transported to the laboratory. And when it reaches the laboratory, we will actually perform a PCR assay. Now, the PCR assays are designed to look for genes that are reasonably specific to the new coronavirus. And um, it works by amplifying up large quantities of genes, which we then detect, um, and, we can, and we can then report that test as either positive or negative. Now, Dr. Terry, there's been some questioning of the quality of the testing, depending whether it's taken through nasally or through one's mouth. What is your take on this? And should this even be a question? It's quite an interesting question. Um, and a lot of the, the kind of collection we do depends a little bit on the kinds of materials which are available for collection. So if I can just take you through it, um, essentially for patients who are sort of ambulatory patients, your best option would be to go for a nasopharyngeal swab. And as you correctly said, this is taken through the nose um, with, a, with a very fine swab that's inserted into the Um, back of the throat through the nose. And that gives you generally the best yield. Um, On on some data which has come out, it appears your second best sample is likely to be what we call a mid-turbinate swab. And this is a sample that's collected from roughly halfway up the nose. Um, And it's a fairly sensitive base to take a sample from, but it it yields a reasonable result as well. Then from the front of the nose, um, a swab can also be collected. And as you correctly said, an oropharyngeal swab, which um, is inserted through the mouth into the back of the throat. And that is the one of all the um, nasal versus uh, uh, oropharyngeal swabs. That is the one that's got the lowest yield. One of the problems which we encountered in South Africa in the early part of the um, epidemic was that there was a shortage of nasopharyngeal swabs and we simply couldn't procure any in order to collect the most ideal samples. And we were often in the situation where we had to rather collect an oropharyngeal swab, um, although we were well aware of the fact that the yield from such a swab is not as good as we would have got from an oro, uh, from a nasopharyngeal swab. We've been able to source nasopharyngeal swabs, and that is back to being our preferred sample. So you're absolutely correct. The nasopharyngeal swab gives the best yield in terms of um, sensitivity for the subsequent testing. Now, Dr. Terry, we have heard of stories of people testing positive at the lab, and then at another lab, they are testing negative. Could this be possible? And are there misconceptions around this? Yes, there are misconceptions, and yes, it is very possible. We've seen a number of of, um, occurrences where where we've found this phenomenon. Now, there are a few things which we need to take into account. The first thing is, 
Um, at the moment, we're using many, many different PCR assays delivered by different vendors in order to um, do the testing which is required. Now, although each assay which we use is validated and we make sure that it works and so on, we do know that there are different sensitivities amongst different assays. And one of the issues that we therefore find is that you may detect the virus in one assay, but not the next assay. Um, so if, for example, and we'll just use the laboratory I'm in at the moment, we may test it on an assay that's very, very sensitive and pick up a positive result. The patient goes and gets tested again for whichever reason, um, and the sample goes to a different laboratory using a different assay, which might be less sensitive perhaps, and will come back with a negative result. So that is one issue. The other issue with this virus is that it's not shed uniformly all the time. And therefore, there is a, um, a quite a good chance that at the time when the patient was sampled for the laboratory I'm in, she or he is shedding virus at that point and we detect it. The patient goes to another laboratory for a check test um, just to make sure the result truly is positive, may not be shedding at the same rate um, and the test comes back negative. So that is another factor which we need to take into account. And that becomes a little bit more prominent as the patient moves through the disease course. So as he or she moves towards the end of the disease process, um, the shedding becomes more intermittent. It becomes more difficult to consistently pick up a positive result. So it is a very real phenomenon. And we've had many, many such situations um, in which patients have queried results. As it is in the course of this pandemic, it is, as you're aware, a public health emergency, and therefore the result that must be relied upon is the positive result. And I think this is the correct approach to take, because if you consider it is on this result that you need to make decisions around isolation and quarantining of, of contacts and so on, um, it makes sense to follow the positive result. And also looking at the limited sensitivity of the assays we use, a positive result is more likely to be the reliable one than a negative result under these situations where a patient retests. We also get the same thing happening even if a patient retests at the same laboratory. And for example, we can look at situations where a patient um, has gone through the progress of the COVID infection and now wants to see whether he or she is negative and can return to work and you know so what happens here and this should not be done um, essentially once you've gone through your 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 course of isolation and so on it's quite safe to return to work but a lot of patients want that reassurance and that come for a test and we might find it still positive for very prolonged periods of time although the patient is no longer infectious we also find a situation where the patient is positive and then tests again a few days later and is negative and tests again a couple of days later and is positive again. You know, so even within the same laboratory, you can get intermittently different results. Um, and it's not a fault of the assay or of laboratory technique or anything like that. It's just that this virus is not always detectable at the same rate that we'd expect it to be. It's quite a difficult diagnostic dilemma to work with when, when this sort of situation occurs. Now, Dr. Marshall, I believe you'd be the best position to answer my next question, especially in the, in, for those among us who go out to get themselves tested, but then end up having to wait longer 
than other people to get their results back. What could be the reason for the delays in the delivery of, of test results? Is it more than one reason or are there other factors that people should be aware of? Well, I, I think the main reason is that particularly at the height of the, um, of the uh, pandemic in South Africa, um, the laboratories were simply overwhelmed. And therefore, we would receive many thousands of samples a day, far more than we could actually cope with in a, in a reasonable 24-hour period. And this had a tremendous effect on our turnaround times. And so I think that this was the main reason. It is no longer the case. I mean, at the moment, we're all coping with pretty good turnaround times. Um, we're coping with the demands that are made on the laboratory. But I would say it was probably towards the end of June and the early part of July where the volumes churning through the laboratory were at their peak. Um, I, I stand corrected on that because it's been a little bit of a blur in time over the past few months. But, but, but that was a period, I think, which was probably the worst for the massive overload in the laboratories. And we simply couldn't cope with the samples. And the end result was that some people waited many days to get the results back. Um, the other thing which certainly in the laboratory I'm in that we do, is we triage samples. So we will give priority to the sickest of the patients, those in ICUs, those in hospitals, those requiring hospitalization. So these are the samples which we will test first. And the ambulatory, otherwise healthy person who thinks he or she may have contracted COVID um, or, or have the disease COVID. Um, these patients who are otherwise healthy, we would we would delay a little bit in order to churn through the most urgent of patients. And I'm sure you can understand that. So in that sort of situation, your hospital patients would get their results first and the other patients would get their results later on. Um, at the moment though, our turnaround times are good and I think most people are getting the results roughly within 24 to 48 hours of, of collection. And speaking of testing, Dr. Terry, how much does it cost to do the tests on average at a private lab? We hear that as many private labs, you are currently not taking medical aids, but rather asking patients to pay cash and claim from their medical aid. What informed this decision? And was the lab faced with difficulties to get their payments from medical aids? Uh, it's quite that, that's quite a complex question, um, and I'm going to start off with the costs of the test. Um, the, the 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 average price in the private sector is about eight. 150 rand per PCR test. So um, th th that is a price which was negotiated. The Department of Health early on in the epidemic asked us to drop our prices as low as we could. And this is what we came up with, bearing in mind the PPE, that, that's protective personal, personal protective equipment that needs to be used and so on. Um, so that's a sort of average price across the board in the private health sector. Um, the medical aids, this, the, the testing is funded out of your prescribed minimal benefits, minimum benefits, uh, I beg your pardon, my, my language is not good at the moment, <laughs> but this is, this is the, um, it is covered by medical aids, um, but it varies a little bit from fund to fund. And generally, if the test result comes back positive, it's funded out of the risk benefit of the patient's medical aid. 
if it comes back negative, it is funded out of the medical savings plan, which the person may have. If a patient does not have a medical savings plan, then it comes out of pocket. Um, and also initially, there were, there were other elements that had to be taken into account. And you may well be aware that patients who had to be admitted to hospital for reasons other than COVID. So it might be, for example, a patient who needs uh, a cardiac procedure or a child who needs a tonsillectomy, for example. And the hospitals required that a negative COVID test be delivered prior to admitting those patients for what we call elective procedures. Now, under those circumstances, initially the funders did not cover the cost of the testing. And there we needed to request that the patients paid up front. So I think these are all elements which fed into the perception that the private sector was requesting patients to pay up front. And it is a very real thing. You know, um, the, the reality is that um, the, the whole funding process has become a little bit easier as the epidemic has evolved. Um, but there is still the risk of not being paid and accumulating very large amounts of bad debt, which um, in the current how can one put this, suppressed economic environment can be reasonably catastrophic for, for private sector laboratories. Um, and this is why on occasion patients are asked to pay up front um, and it's weighed up depending on what the need for the assay is and um, whether the funders are likely to cover the cost or not. Only sick people and those showing symptoms are the ones recommended to go for testing. How do we compare with other countries in this regard? And um, that's an interesting question. And I have to tell you, I don't have a particularly interesting answer for you. Um, I think most, most countries um, will have their own policies. And I honestly don't, all, don't know what their policies might be. And there are certain places, for example, and, and I, I can speak, um, you know, fr from from the little knowledge I have of other countries' policies, where, for example, um, I think it was South Korea made a decision that they would test as many people in their population as they possibly could in order to detect as many positive patients as they could and put them into isolation to try and interrupt transmission. So that was a policy in one particular country. In our country, you will be aware that in the early part of the epidemic, um, our Department of Health did community screening. And what they did was they sent out teams of, of um, people who had been appropriately trained, and they would do um, a screening using clinical criteria and questionnaire-based criteria to see who fitted the, the criteria for um, infection with, with, with this virus. And those were the people they would screen out and test. So they were symptomatic. Um, but they were not sick enough necessarily to require medical care or hospitalization. And these were people that were tested within the community. Within the private sector initially, we had quite a large demand from asymptomatic people for employment purposes, for a variety of reasons, to also have testing done, including pre-admission um, situations for hospitals and so on. And there we tested very large numbers of asymptomatic people. Um, but as the epidemic progressed and we realized we were falling into backlog um, in the laboratories, which is a very difficult situation to manage when you're working with um, potentially severe, severely ill patients, um, at that stage, 
we requested that only symptomatic people be tested in order to lift a little bit of the load from the laboratories and in order to get I suppose you could say the best bang for the buck. In other words, the patients you were most likely to actually detect the virus in. Uh, and this, these were the reasons why we went with the, with the route we did. As um, the situation becomes more manageable, we may very well say, look, we can open it again to people who are asymptomatic and not necessarily um, ill um, for, for testing. The other thing, though, that we need to take account of is, is that um, a lot of the funders work on the basis of the guidelines that were produced by the NICD and the Department of Health. And if patients came in who were asymptomatic and didn't fulfill the criteria for being tested, very often the funders would not carry the cost of that and it would leave the patient out of pocket. So there were a few reasons why we decided to rather adhere to the decision to rather test people who were symptomatic as opposed to what we've done in the past. As I say, the situation is fluid and may well change again, but um, that is where it was to, to control the situation to some extent in the laboratory. And I think one of the things which also, and I'm just going to sort of throw this out there for you and your listeners to consider, um, if you're in a situation where your hospitals are packed with really, really sick people and you get flooded out with samples from people who are asymptomatic and not necessarily in need of testing, it can compromise the level of service offered to your hospitalized patients. And that was the other thing which you always have to consider as you move into the more symptomatic and the, the phase of the pandemic where where more and more people are sick and really urgently need hospital care. So there are many, many factors that come into play there. But certainly all of this stuff was considered when we made the decision to rather stick to the, the recommendations made by the Department of Health and the NICD and to rather test symptomatic people only. Now, finally, from me, doctor, in the interest of making sure that stigma around this virus isn't, isn't reinforced, in the wake of the uh, of updates to the public being um, that COVID-19 is now airborne and in the wake of the isolation period being decreased from 14 days to 10 days and in the wake of uh, reports surfacing of people catching this virus on more than one occasion. In, in, in a situation where that might absolutely lead to people getting more anxious about um, their chances of catching COVID-19 and then possibly catching again. In your expert medical opinion, is there a reasonable gap in time between the first time you are, a, you are confirmed to be um, COVID-19 positive versus wanting to check again to see that you didn't catch the virus again? Yeah, that's also a very difficult question to answer. You know, the reality is that we know that once a person has been infected with this virus, they can still, you can still detect evidence of the virus weeks down the line. So, um, use, and, and this is, just understand, this is not infectious this is the nucleic acid, the RNA or the DNA of the pathogen that we're actually detecting, um, but it does not mean that the person is infectious any longer. So the change in time for isolation and so on, it's partly pragmatic so that people can get back to work and particularly healthcare workers, because you'll be aware that healthcare workers are particularly prone to being infected. Um, and if they go off work, it leaves a gap in the service. 
a very serious gap for patient care and for patient testing and that kind of thing. So it's partly pragmatic, but also we do know from studies that have been done looking at um, culture work where the viable virus is actually looked for in cell cultures and so on, that the infectious period, usually by about day 10, you are, are at not a great risk of being infectious any longer. So from the perspective of trying to control stigma, um, I would really go with the angle that once you've been sort of, you've moved 10 days beyond the onset of symptoms or beyond the time of being tested, you are no longer infectious and people around you are perfectly safe with you. Um, in terms of, of, um, of trying to determine whether a person is reinfected or not reinfected, whether we might still be detecting nucleic acid from the previous infection, that is very difficult to determine at this stage. So, you know, I, I, I stand corrected here because um, I, I need, I haven't sort of uh, picked up any longer period. But in Italy, for example, they were still detecting positive PCR assays on people sort of 67 days later. Um, and that will give you a little bit of a, an idea of the difficulty. So, if, for example, I am detected as COVID positive on a test and I repeatedly test over the course of the next two, week, two months or so, um, I will repeatedly test positive and possibly negative and then positive again and then positive. It doesn't mean I'm reinfected. It just means we're still detecting evidence of the previous infection which I had. So it's very hard to determine whether a person is truly newly infected or whether it's simply residual RNA that we're actually picking up on our assays. That's going to be the challenge going forwards. So um, I can't at this stage tell you, well, I would say by three months, if you, if you test positive again, it's probably a new infection. We don't have that answer at this point, you know. So I think this is what we need to be very, very careful of. And um, the, the, we really need to wait um, for more data to be um, published and for more very focused studies to be done on exactly this issue. And we possibly need to look beyond simply PCR testing and look at proper viral culture work. The, the fact that a person tests positive again after a previous infection, um, it doesn't necessarily mean it's a new infection. It can still be from the previous infection which that, which that person had. So we really need to wait for further research and um, further understanding on the behavior of this virus, on how solid the immunity and so on is, before we can be sure um, whether people are truly reinfected or not. I suspect that quite a number of the so-called reinfections are not reinfections. It's still detecting that residual nucleic acid that we which we which we can detect for many many weeks after the after the um, initial infection. Now, lastly, doctor from us, what is one thing you wish South Africans knew about the testing process or about COVID nineteen as a whole? I, I think I think most of us kind of know what needs to be done, but if there's one thing that I, I, I would really love people to take to heart is understand the methods that we know that limit transmission. Understand the proper wearing of masks. And that doesn't mean wearing the mask under your chin or under your nose. Wear it properly. 
Make sure that you keep your hand hygiene up to scratch. Frequent washing of your hands. Avoid touching your face all the time. This is very, very important because you can transmit the pathogen to your face in this way. Respect the social distancing that's required. This is not in place just for fun. We know what it takes to prevent transmission. And I think one of the things that always kind of worries me a little bit is that we see young people running around feeling perfectly safe because they know most of the time young people get relatively mild disease, are not at massive risk of mortality due to this virus. But understand that you can catch this virus and you might transmit it to a more vulnerable member of society. These are the people we need to protect. And this is why, my, if there was one thing I would like South Africans to take to heart, practice the preventive methods that we know work in controlling this epidemic. And I think until we have more information on the virus, on the risk factors that predispose people to severe disease. Um, and there too, I would like to say we have had young people die of this disease. So just because you're 17 or 18 doesn't mean you won't suffer severe effects due to the virus. The chances are good that you won't, but you may. And I think this is one of the things I would like people to take to heart. Practice what we know works and do it properly. We've just been in conversation here on The COVID Report with Dr. Terry Marshall, who is a specialist virologist at Ampath Laboratories, talking to us about the COVID-19 testing process and helping us establish fact from myth. This podcast was brought to you by Voice of Vids. By Voice of Vids. To hear more of our shows, tune in to 88.1. Or streams by www.varfm.co.za.